Well, we're going to be continuing on our presentation on the sanctuary. In today's message, we're going to be taking a look back over uh, the outer court and the holy place in what we have been learning about God's plan to reclaim us from the power and the curse of sin. I want to share that this particular study is, is a favorite of mine. Um, it means a lot to me. I'm a very practical person, and I like to know how things work. And that's especially true in the plan of salvation. And my interest in the sanctuary isn't because I have a curiosity of Jewish antiquity and their ways of worship. My interest uh, is, uh, as I shared with you when I started this series, is because I wanted to understand how to have victory over sin. I'm not interested in theory or just head knowledge that leads to nothing. I, I want victory. And so if that is your desire, if you have, I, I pray that today a lot of, of blanks are filled in for you. I pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate your mind with what um, you're going to hear today. It is my desire to share what the Lord Jesus has, has, has shown me in regards to this issue, which to me is where the rubber meets the road. Um, I, uh, for those of you who have been here a while, I shared a similar message about three years ago, so you'll hear some similarities. But as a teacher, I have learned that repetition deepens impression. And I, and I don't feel that this subject is one that we hear once and then we're good. It's one that we have to be reminded of often. Uh, and for the simple fact that really the buck stops on this topic. It stops here. But with that introduction, I would like for us to begin with a word of prayer once more. And I'm going to ask if you will join me in kneeling on this one. Father in heaven, we come into your house this morning to worship you as our creator and our savior and our heavenly father and our friend. We, we, are, we are so grateful, dear God, that we have come to know you and we're getting to know you. We're thankful, Lord, for uh, the messages you've given to us in your word to help us to understand who you are and how to cooperate with you in your work to save us and a dying world. And Lord, as we do today, there, you know that this is a message that's very dear to my heart. Lord, it's very dear to yours. And we come to you because we are requesting, dear God, for your blood to wash away our sin. And Lord, we have blown it this week. In fact, we very likely did this morning. And we need the blood of Christ to wash away our sin. We need the Holy Spirit, Father, to work within us, to transform us. We need the righteousness of Christ to cover us because we have none to offer you. We need your angels here to impress our hearts and to keep the evil one away so he doesn't distract us. Lord, visit us now. We plead with you. Illuminate our minds. And I pray that the speaker will not be a hindrance to what you wish to do now. Thank you for this, dear Lord. Thank you. For we ask it all in the name of Jesus who died to reclaim us. We pray, amen. Last Sabbath, we talked a little bit about the daily. The sanctuary was divided up into two services, basically. One is called the daily, the other the yearly. We'll talk about the yearly later when we get into the Day of Atonement. 
But the daily described the operation that took place in the, in the tabernacle every day. And it began with uh, a burnt offering. And the burnt offering, we learned, was an offering of dedication. And it, uh, it was a time for Israel to dedicate themselves, but it also dedicated the sanctuary that day for service. We knew that the priest would wash his hands and feet before he went into the tabernacle. And when he did, he made sure to check that there was plenty of oil in the menorah, that the showbread was present, and then he would place the incense on the golden altar. And this activity was known as the daily, inaugurated the services. Then Israel would come with their uh, sin offerings, peace offerings, thank offerings, and whatnot. And then the service, again, would end at the end of the day the same way it began. And, and, and in this process, God was actually trying to teach Israel and us how he planned to deal with the sin problem, not just with the past, but with the sin problem we face each day. What we're learning in our study about the sanctuary is that God is very serious about the sin problem. He is deadly serious because the wages of sin is death. No games here. This, this problem cost the life of his son. And the fact that he had to step off the throne to die on our behalf tells us that there was no other way to save us. There was no other way. God is serious about the sin problem. And you know, there are people today that are teaching, pastors, that we're going to keep right on sinning and we're going to be saved in the end. We have to remember that sin, what sin is. Sin is knowing what God's will is and you choose to go against it. The Bible refers to that as rebellion. And and if, if sin, we studied this in the study about uh, angels, if sin in heaven caused the angels to be cast out, who in the world thinks that we're actually going to be going in sinning? It's, it's, not, it's not conceivable. And until we understand that, we're not going to recognize how serious this issue is and how much we need Christ. When, when the angel was sent to communicate to Joseph the mission of Jesus in Matthew 1, 21, he said to him, he said, in fact, I have it right here, he said, and she, talking about Mary and the mission of Christ, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus, for he shall save his people from, from their sin. This is critical. The angel didn't goof. This is vital. And until we wrestle with that from, we're not going to wrestle with the plan of salvation. What we're going to learn in the study as we continue on in, in the sanctuary is that God, in the end, is going to eradicate sin from the universe. He will. But sadly, it will also result in the destruction of many who refused to let it go. We're going to talk about that. So what we're going to do today, we're going to take a closer look at God's plan as revealed in the outer court and in the holy place. So let's begin with, uh, with question number one, and we're going to look about victory over the power of sin. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So question number one, 
What is God's will concerning his people? First Thessalonians, Paul tells us, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. You see, sanctification is set, it means to be set aside for holy use. And so what, what the sanctuary is telling us is that the plan of salvation is all about change and transformation. That's what it's about. You see, when we're born in this world, we're born with a fallen nature. Self rules. I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how do I want to do it? I'm going to marry who I want to marry. I'm going to work where I want to work. I'm going to do what I want to do. Self is in control. By the way, that's a lousy place to be. That's a quick road to unhappiness. But when we ask Christ into our life, then, the, then, the, then Jesus comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. A divine element now is involved, and now Christ is on the throne, and we give him permission now to call the shots. We ask God, is this the one you want me to marry? Is this the work you want me to have? Is this the place you want me to live? And that's the road to peace and happiness, is to allow Christ to rule and, and, and so the, ultimately, the goal of the plan of salvation is to restore in man, in the human race, what was lost in the Garden of Eden when they listened to the tempter instead of to God. They lost the image. The character of God was lost in humanity. Whereas before humanity made decisions based on reason, now humanity makes their decisions based on their feelings. And that leads to trouble. So God wants us to be totally surrendered. That's the way to happiness. I'm going to share with you a pet peeve I have. I have a number of them, actually. But this is one of them. Have you heard, ever heard this one? God accepts me the way I am. I respectfully disagree. God receives me the way I am. But he loves me too much to leave me there. Think of the gospel as a shower. The shower will receive you the way you are. The mess that you are, it will receive you, but it is going to clean you up. And that is the plan of salvation. That is how it works. Take a look at the note right below one. I'm going to read aloud if you'll follow along with me. Sanctification is the total surrender of our will to the will of God. It is something that God does in the repentant sinner who cooperates with God. Bible sanctification is motivated and empowered all the way by the Holy Spirit and directed to the honor and glory of God. Without his power working in us, we are totally helpless and hopeless, congregation said. Amen. Jesus said, for without me, you can do how much? It is God who transforms the believer in every aspect of his daily existence, in his thinking and acting, desires, in short, completely. This effect is seen in the home, work, school, church, and the community at large. And I just want to stress here that it begins in the home. I want to stress that. If the gospel is not working at home, it's not working. It's a facade. And we can fool people at church, we can fool people at work, we don't fool people at home. That's where we let our hair down. That's where we really show ourselves. 
And so the gospel begins at home. Jesus told his disciples when they were getting ready to spread the gospel, begin at Jerusalem. Begin with the people you know. Then it goes out. Then it's real. Are you with me? So let's take a look and continue. Uh, In question number two, in order to enjoy sanctification, what attitude must one have towards Jesus and sin? In 1 John 3, 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The goal is to be like Jesus. That's the goal, is to be like Christ in our home, in our school, is to reflect Jesus. That's the goal. And so we want to purify ourselves so that Christ can shine out his life and live out his life within me. Let's take a look at the next one. The next, Exodus thirty-three, thirteen. what we find there is the prayer of a sincere Christian. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, what's the next two words? Show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful prayer? This is a, this is a prayer, a humble prayer, an honest prayer. Because in this prayer, the person is acknowledging that there's things wrong with them. In this prayer, the person is acknowledging that there are things they're blind to. And they're asking God to reveal, show me now your way. It's a request. You know, friend, when we ask God to show us his way, he's going to show us. He's eager for us to reflect his character. And so when we ask, he will show us. But the human heart is a tricky animal to deal with. Because even though we ask, we really don't want to know. You know, it's funny. when, when, When we ask God to show us, we would be very content and happy if an angel showed up at our front door with a little clipboard and he said, George, about that incident yesterday when you kicked the dog, we don't do that in our kingdom. You know what I'm saying? We would be good if an angel came to show us our stuff. But the reality is, is that when God begins to show us our stuff, he's going to use your spouse. He's going to know the people that know you best. He's going to use your wife or he's going to use your husband to show you your deal. I know that, was the, that has been the case for me. And early in my, in my walk with Christ, as I began to ask God to show me what in my life was not reflecting him, I remember the day that my, my wife came up to me and she told me that she needed me to be the priest of the home. And, you know, it's interesting, as I reflected back, I realized now that my wife actually didn't even know what that meant. The Holy Spirit had prompted her. And, you know, I had to be honest, I didn't know what that meant either. I'd heard the expression. I'd used it. Priest of the Hope. Had no idea what that meant. But we're learning in the sanctuary that the priest represented who? So when God asks the husband 
to be the priest of the home. He's asking him to reflect Christ in the home. And to do that, you have to study the life of Jesus. Isn't that true? And so after my wife, you know, gave me this challenge, I looked at the life of Jesus completely differently. Now, I began to look at his life as an example of what it is to be a husband. And you know, Jesus dealt with rebels, just like sometimes we as husbands have to. And he showed us how to do it in his dealings with Judas. He didn't expose him. He didn't make him look back. He kept, he kept working to try to win his heart. And I, I'm so thankful, and, and I don't say this disrespectfully. Forgive me, I'm, I, I'm the pastor from the other side of the tracks, okay? But, but I'm so thankful for the disciples that they were such boneheads. Because we are. And, and if they were like the 12 perfect individuals, I would have given up a long time ago. But Christ dealt with them where they were and kept bringing them to higher ground and changed. Their lives were all changed with the exception of one who resisted. But the others didn't resist. They acknowledged when Jesus called them out, they didn't argue with him. And so I studied his life. And you know, right now we're in this series on the sanctuary, but prior to it, we were studying the life of Jesus. And when we're done with this, we're going to pick that up again. Because I love studying the life of Jesus. I love seeing how Jesus dealt with sinners. Because not only does it give me hope, but it gives me a model on how I should deal with others that are giving me grief. We have to have a teachable spirit. That's where it begins. So how does God do this? This next verse uh, in, in question number three <clears throat> that I'm going to share with you is really the key. And I'm going to use some voice fluctuation and throw some things in along the way just to emphasize. But <clears throat> everywhere where you see the word abide, I want you to, and there's a couple places where the word fruit appears. And, and let's put our thinkers on in this verse, okay? Okay, so you got the first word. Abide in me. This is Jesus talking. Jesus is giving us the answer here. Abide in me and I in you. Now watch this. Watch this illustration. As the, he's talking about grapevines here. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Don't miss that. Unless it abide. Oops. Unless it what? Abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now he makes the bridge. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So right here, Jesus is telling us how to live a victorious life. You know, the fruit that we're talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You got a boatload of those? I know that I don't, not without Christ. So, so what Jesus is saying here is that the branch, the branch in and of itself cannot produce fruit unless 
it's connected to the vine. You see, the source, the source of fruit production is not the branch. It's the vine. And so for the branch to have any hope of producing fruit, it has got to be connected. Now, if if we had a grapevine here in the back of our property and we went to it, and uh, and this was a microphone and I held it up to the branch, this is what you would not hear. Grape. 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 You would not hear a branch trying to produce grapes. Are we thinking? Grape production is a byproduct of being connected to the vine. We have to remember the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the person. Does that make sense? It has to do with the connection. The connection is the key. So how do we get connected and remain connected to Jesus? We've been studying about it in the daily. It's by coming to Christ who is the gate every day. It's by, it's by making sure there is nothing between my soul and my Savior. And if it is, then I deal with it by either bringing restitution if I have to restore something. Uh, but for sure, it's by asking for forgiveness and turning from the sin and the power of God. Are you with me? It's every day committing my life to Jesus that I'm going to allow him to remain on the throne of my heart. It's every day asking for the Holy Spirit because that's where I get the desire and the power to say no to sin. It's every day being in the word of God because it is there that God teaches me what it means to be a child of God. And it's every day communicating to God in prayer. It is known as the daily That's how we get uh, connected with the Lord and that's how we remain connected. Why does this work? We talked about this because God created our minds with a law. By beholding, we become changed. And we find that in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Solomon said it differently in Proverbs 23.7. He said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's by keeping God, keeping Christ before us, by starting our day with him and making sure to end it with him and staying connected throughout the day, he sustains us. He gives us the power to live above sin. He gives us the ability to produce fruit and reflect him to the world. Are you with me? Elizabeth, I'd like you to come forward here just for a moment, if that's okay. I'm not, I'm not gonna embarrass you too bad. <sighs> you'll hold this right there and I want you to shine this uh, let me go a little further over here shine this right uh, right here on my chest you got it is that good okay I'm going to illustrate it okay I I won't turn the lights off because we're on film but this this cup represents uh, me represents you and so I've given my life to Christ and I learned that sin is darkness and I look into the cup and I see darkness and, uh, and so Elizabeth, my Christian friend, says, you know, you really, you really got to deal with that. And so I go, okay. Hmm. I know, I must not be trying hard enough 
That's it. You know, maybe the plan of salvation was for other people but not for me. You know, it's just not working for me. Have you ever been there? The devil whispers that. And so Elizabeth, my friend, says, no, George. So she gives me counsel. She says, turn to the light. So then I do. Oh, I see light in there now. But I still see shadows. Friend, what do I do to get rid of the shadows? Draw closer. And so as I am meeting with Christ daily, and as I'm learning what it means to walk with Jesus, and I'm making the choice to surrender my will and to obey him, I am drawing closer and closer. And the closer I draw, the more of Jesus people are seeing in me until Christ is formed within the hope of glory. My job is to deal with the distance issue. His job is to deal with the darkness issue in my life. Does that make sense? Thank you, sweetheart, very much. Let's take a look at the note right below uh, that section four. It says, now this is the daily experience. It was for Israel of old and it is for us today. While with penitence and humble trust we meditate upon Jesus through his word, whom our sins have pierced and our sorrows have burdened, we may learn to walk in his footsteps. By beholding him, we become changed into his divine likeness. And when this work is produced in us, we will claim no righteousness of our own, but will exalt Jesus while we hang our helpless souls upon his merits. Does that make sense? This is the reason, now I'm going to say some things here that might offend some people, I'm sorry, but it's better you learn this now than later. This is the reason why the devotional life is not an option. If you want change in your life, if you want to be transformed, if you want Christ living out his life within you, a devotional life is not an option. You know, you can become a church member without a devotional life. And what that has made you is a decoy. The devil will work through you to draw others away. I'm just telling you straight up, if, if you do not have a devotion, if you're not meeting with Christ each day in the Word, if you're not doing it, you're lost in the church. Nobody is saved by church attendance. I just want you to know that. We're saved through our connection with Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that, that coming, just coming to church without a devotional life, just coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. What makes us a Christian is Christ and it's spending time with him each day and allowing him to transform our lives. You know, it's interesting, but Pastor Paute, it is, it is so difficult. Yeah, the devil can care less if you come to church. The devil gets nervous when you begin spending time with Jesus in the word because that is where his power is broken. His power is broken there. You know, <clears throat> I'm one of these annoying people that wakes up in the morning firing on all eight cylinders. I wake up talking. I'm ready. I can just conquer the world. In fact, all night my mind's been working on stuff, and in the morning I got all the solutions. My family, Josh and Sarah, are not like that. It takes them about noon before they're 
able to put words together and form a sentence. But, but me, I, I wake up firing at all eight. I, I, I'm just ready to go. The day that I made the choice to have worship was the day all of a sudden I was no longer a morning person. The devil did everything he could to see to it that I did not spend that time with Christ. He did everything but super glue me to the bed and it was a struggle. So if you tell me that you have, you're having your struggles in, in your wor- morning worship, welcome to the club because now the devil's nervous. Now he is nervous. Let's take a look at number five. <clears throat> Where does the power to obey come from? Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works where? In you, both to will, that's your desire, and to do, that's your performance, His good pleasure. You and I are not capable apart from Him, but it is God. When we make the effort, God gives the power. Let me, let me state it a different way. When you and I make the choice to obey God then adds the power to make it a reality. Does that make sense? That's how it works. I remember when, um, I think the second biggest sin in my life that the Lord asked from me was uh, when I started to follow him was my mouth. I, I had a very foul mouth. And uh, if you took away from me all my four-letter words, I, I would have a real hard time communicating because I, it was always flying out of my mouth. And, and I had my best friend said to me, George, I know exactly what your last words are going to be before the bus hits you. Because whenever I had near-death experiences, the word would come out. Or if I dropped something on my foot, or if I hit my finger with a hammer, the filth and foul would fly out. I didn't have to think about it. I was programmed. Anyway, as I began my walk with Jesus, I began reading where the word said, you shall, you shall not allow any corrupt communication escape your lips. Well, there was plenty of corruption escaping mine. And when I read that, I thought, ooh, Lord, I am so sorry. I didn't realize that my bad words were so offensive to you. <laughs> really? And... Um, It's interesting, but the disciples of Jesus were known for their clean language. That's why at the trial, when the girl, the little girl asked Peter for the third time, aren't you one of his followers? He did what? Yeah, he cursed. He cursed uh, in an effort to throw off suspicion because people knew that the followers of Jesus don't curse. You with me? And so I was really bothered by this, and so I made the decision not to curse. And that was my New Year's resolution for two years and after a year and a half of trying and I couldn't stop cursing I finally went to the Lord one day in tears and I said you know there is no argument between me and you I'm in agreement I need to stop and I want to stop Lord I'm so sorry and I said so I've tried and I can't so I'm giving you permission you do whatever you need to do to set me free I give you permission you do what you need to do And a few months later, I got a call from a friend who had a worse mouth than I did, and that's saying something. And as I listened to him, suddenly it was painful to hear. I was like, oh, mercy. And oh, he just kept going, and then I hung up the phone after we were done talking. He was done cursing. And um, 
And you know what I realized in a whole conversation, because when he and I got together, it was usually very colorful. And I realized there was no foul communication had left my mouth. And I thought, wow, I didn't curse at all in that conversation. And then I got to thinking, and I don't remember when I had stopped, but I couldn't remember the last time I'd cursed. But see, through this whole time, though, I was continuing in my relationship, my time with Christ. Christ set me free. When I hear people say that God cannot set us free, my big question to them is, friend, which is the sin you don't want to be set free from? Or, or ask differently, which is the sin God can't set you free from? I'm interested to know which one that is. But it's the one we don't want freedom from. By the way, I want to share something with you that I, I just think is so amazing. You know, we're talking about the daily and coming to Jesus every day, right? Let me use a different pen here. <clears throat> so each day we come to Christ. Each day we make sure there's nothing between our soul and our Savior. Each day we recommit our lives to Jesus. Each day we ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Each day we spend time in his word. So let's say I'm reading the word and I learn in studying the word like I did in this illustration, let no corrupt communication escape your lips. <gasps> that is a sin, right? So what I do is I come back out here and I said, Lord, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm going to make the effort. I'm going to make the decision to honor you with my words. You help me because you know that I'm weak. So you help me. And then I ask him to send me the Holy Spirit and I go back into the word. I want you to understand that in the process of what I just shared with you, what's out here? Do you remember what's out here? It was the curtain. Do you remember what the curtain was made out of? It was linen. You remember what color it was? It was white. What did that linen represent? Purity. What else? More specifically. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. So when I come into this place, I am covered by the righteousness of Christ. And even when he reveals to me my sin, if I run back to the cross, I'm still covered. Let that sink in. But if I do not repent of that sin, if I excuse it, well, if they hadn't, I wouldn't have. If I excuse it, I bypass the, the cross and I leave the courtyard and I'm heading east. Are you with me? But even as God, when God reveals to me sin in my life and I go, oh my, and I run to the cross, I am still covered by his righteousness. That is so incredibly encouraging and beautiful. Let's continue now and let's take a look at number six. How does God do this? This is an amazing verse, so incredibly powerful and beautiful. And so everywhere the word I appears, I want you to speak up, okay? So there's the first word. What is it? This is God speaking, okay? So you just ask how. Watch. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Look at this next word. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Can you say amen? As we make the choice to surrender to Jesus, as we make the choice each day to allow him to be the Lord of our lives, to yield to his leading, it gives him the right now to give me a new heart. 
How cool is that? Take a look at the next one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. Again, you, you, you give me, the, you speak out the eyes. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. We're talking about reprogramming. So what I used to love, I now, and what I used to hate, I now, and we give him the right when we make the choice to obey him. You know, it's interesting. I remember the day a man walked up to me. I was witnessing to him. He recognized that I was a Christian, uh, and he said to me, you know, I would be one, except um, God's law cannot be obeyed. And, I'd, you know, obviously the answer is true if it's done in your own strength. We all agree with that. But with Christ, all things are possible. And so I, uh, I didn't have a lot of time, and I, and I did something with him I have never done with anyone else. Um, there's a lot in my past that I'm ashamed of. There's a lot of things in my, there's a lot of dark things in my past that uh, I wish I had never done. They are things that when the devil flashes them in my, in my memory even today, it bows my head with grief. And I will not ask for a show of hands to see who else is in that boat. And, and I don't talk about those things because they, they grieve me. But when this guy said this, I didn't have time, a lot of time to really sit down with him. I, I prayed. I said, Lord, give me something quick for this guy. I got to go. And so because I had to answer his statement. What he said was completely, it was going to cost him his eternal life. I had to answer that. I said to him, brother, I used to be bound by this, this, this. This used to be part of my life. And I went through the whole litany of yuck and darkness in my past. Then I looked at him and I said, none of that is part of my life anymore. I don't white knuckle it. I don't miss it. I don't hanker for it. In fact, I hate the fact that it was part of my life at one some point. And I'm so thankful for the life that I have now. Now, sir, you tell me why. And he was quiet. I said, let me, let me tell you why. Because God did it in me. I allowed him to. I wanted him to. And he did it in me. Obedience is a choice we make. The power comes from God. And then it gives him the right to change me. It does. Take a look at the note right below this. I love this quote. If you've never read the book, Desire of Ages, please read it. But read it to know Jesus because the book is a biography on the life of Christ. But Desire of Ages, and this is the most, in my mind, on the subject that we're on right now, is the most powerful quote, I believe, in the book. And it's found on page 668. It says, all true obedience comes from the heart. Let me stop right there. It's not an external trip. It's a change that comes from the inside and radiates out. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, give me another word for consent. What does that mean? Allow, permit, surrender. Okay, we're getting other words. If, if we permit, if we give God permission, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we will be carrying out our own impulses. In other words, it's going to be our desire to do it, and we're not even going to be aware that that's what God wanted us to do. 
the will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing a service. Let me pause right there. There was a time in my life that I hated that. And now it is my delight. God changed my heart. Now here's the clincher. Here's the key and the problem. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual what? Obedience. What's my problem if I'm struggling with sin? I don't know. God. That's the struggle. And you only get to know Him as you spend time with Him. Amen? And you, only get, and you have to spend time with Him in the Word because that's where He's revealed. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ. Through communion with God, sin will become what? Hateful. See, the problem, the reason why sin isn't hateful to us is because we are far from the light. But as we come to know God and we draw closer, he begins to reveal, we, he begins to reveal himself. We begin to see what purity is and holiness. And in, the, and, in the, and in the presence of that light, the darkness of our life becomes Evident. And, what the, and, and let, me, let me illustrate this way. It's a great story, true story, about a missionary in India in the 1800s. This guy uh, took his, his wife there, and, and they had a lot of difficulties. And then she got discouraged and went back to the States and left him in India by himself. And uh, he continued laboring on like a good soldier, but then he got very discouraged, and he took his eyes off of Christ. Let me tell you something, friend. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, all the old sins start coming back in again. All of them. Remember, remember that if I take the light away, the darkness returns. Okay? Victory is Jesus. And I only have it as long as I'm with him. And so this guy got discouraged, really discouraged. And uh, he began to mumble and, 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 and complain, and he was coming home one day from, uh, and, and from the field, and he, and he looked out, and there by the river, there was a, there was a little curve in the, in the road that he took, there in the river was a woman bathing, and the sun was setting behind her, and he could see the, the light glistening, and she was, she was nude, and he could see her form, and he decided, this guy flipped out, he decided right, right then and there he was going to have that woman. So he jumped, you know, he threw his stuff down, jumped in the water, grabbed her, spun her around, and she had leprosy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't want to be crude here, but what do you think happened to his sex drive at that moment? You think he lost interest? Like in a big hurry. You see, God doesn't reach into our hearts and rip sin out. He works with us until we see it for, it, for what it really is, and we puke it up. Did you catch that? As we draw closer to God, we begin to see what sin really is about, and we lose interest. Does that make sense? Friends, that is how it works. That is how it works. All right, let's take a look at number seven. <clears throat> when united to Jesus, what is our duty? Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you then being risen with Christ, what's the next word? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. And so I began to realize 
that I was going to have to continue to feed my life with more light. So my music changed. The the majority of the music out in the world today will feed you darkness. And I knew I had to cut off the supply line. And so I I just started surrounding myself with music of the light. Music that talked to me about God and, and reminded me about Him. The other thing I did was my reading material. There was a lot of things that I read that brought darkness into my life. I had to cut that off. My eternal life depended on it. God's not going to force me. He's not going to slap the book out of my hand. I have a choice to make. And so I started reading those things that would draw my heart and my mind to the Lord. And the same thing with programming and entertainment. Anything that was inviting darkness in, I had to shut off the supply. And I had to focus on what was pure and above. Does that make sense? Let's take a look at Matthew 6.33. And this is beautiful. But what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will what? Be added unto you. Isn't that amazing? If we put Christ first, everything else begins to fall into place. That is if we trust him. But if you put anything else first, your life's going to be messed up. But if we put Christ first, everything else begins to fall into place. All right, let's take a look at number eight. Paul gives us a sad warning as we near the end of Earth's history. Sadly, Paul warned that in the last days, much of Christianity would become like the world. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, he says, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, Isn't that interesting? Despisers of good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than loving lovers of God. Pause. Pastor Baute. Haven't the bad guys always been like this? Yes. But that's not who Paul's describing. Let's continue on. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. They They were good at showing up at church. But they weren't good at meeting with God. So they had the form, but there was no power in their lives for victory. There was no power. And then look what Paul says, from such people do what? Because they're decoys. And they will, they will pull you away from God. And I'm just telling you straight up, friends. This is the clarion call. Is there anyone here who has excused not having a devotional life? You have placed your salvation in jeopardy. You've just placed it. It's the, it's the only way we're all going to be saved is by meeting with Jesus Christ, is by letting him live out his life within us and transform us, meeting. But Paul says in the last days, that's not going to happen. People aren't going to live by the word. They're not going to live connected to Jesus. They're just going to have their names on the books and they're going to be a decoy. I want to share something. That church will never win a worldling. It won't do it. You see, people, people who are without God recognize there's something missing in their lives. And they're looking for something that's different than what they have. And when they run into it, when they, if they run into a church and the members act just like they do, then they know full well they, that that church has nothing to offer them. What's going to get their attention is something that's different. That's what's going to get their attention. Not something that's like them, but something different. And the gospel of Jesus Christ offers a refreshing difference. 
to a world that is perishing in sin and is looking for something better. The gospel is that something better. But sadly, many in the last days will be playing church and will not have a living connection with Jesus. There will be no daily experience for them. Take a look at number nine. As Jesus works to transform me, what is my response? Luke 22, 42 uh, says, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will be done, but thine be done. And so as, as, by the way, has anybody here noticed as you draw closer to Jesus, you look worse? If, if you look better, you're not drawing closer to Jesus. <laughs> I can just tell you that right now. But as you draw closer to Christ, you're going to become more painfully aware of how unlike him you are. That is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You can't see that unless God is revealing it to you. And so as we draw closer to Jesus, we become more aware of how unlike him we are. But keep your focus on Jesus. Don't look to your failures. Look to his success. He has promised that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He's promised that. So look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. But as you draw closer, you're not going to look better. And as you draw closer, he's going to show you stuff in your life that is really bad. Don't argue with him. Don't justify it. Just go to your knees, go back to the cross and say, Lord, it's true. Forgive me. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to forgive you. Jesus didn't come for good people because there aren't any. He just came for sinners like you and me. And as we ask him for forgiveness, he's promised to do even more than that. He's promised also to cleanse us. Don't argue with him. Number 10. How is this state of things brought about? Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the only way to do that is by studying God's word. That's the, the, if you want to know the mind of God, study the word of God. And if you want to know what God's will is on a given situation, Study the word for it. Now, friend, if you don't want to study to know what God's will is, my question to you is why? Self is on the throne. And you better get him off. Are you with me? So important. Matthew 11, 29 says, Take my yoke upon you. This is Jesus speaking. And what? Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. How many here need rest? He's offering it. He says, study my life. Focus on me, and I will give you the very thing your heart hungers for. How cool is that? I absolutely love that. It is by beholding him that we become changed. I want to share something with you. When I was, uh, I was pastoring a church uh, years ago, and I was walking through the, the hallway, and I happened to look into the um, early teen room, and I, there was a dry board, and the teacher was writing something, and it had to be the Holy Spirit. Something just made me stop to listen. And the teacher was talking about how things work in us. She said, and she wrote down, thoughts, our thoughts become actions. Actions become habits. Habits be- form our character and our character determines our destiny. 
I remember standing at the door and I was just looking at that. I'd never seen that before. I was the pastor. <laughs> I'd never seen that before and I just stood there looking and I said, that's true. That is how it works. What we think about, we end up doing. We keep doing it, it becomes habit. Those habits form our character and the character is going to determine our destiny. And whenever we want to get victory over sin, where do we tend to focus our energies? We focus them on our actions. Now, there is a level of that we have to do, that's true, but that's not going to give you victory if that's where you stop. The real culprit are the thoughts. That's the problem. Those thoughts have to be replaced. Are you with me? Because this is the way we roll. Whatever we're thinking about, we're going to end up doing. And if you don't want to do it, change what you're thinking. Replace it with the gospel. Grab promises and replace those in your mind because that is exactly how we roll. Let's take a look. Number 11. In all things, what should be our mindset? Philippians 2, 5 says, let this what? Mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as we're abiding with Jesus and we're studying the word, we're coming into contact with the mind of God. God's going to tell us what he thinks about things. He's gonna, he will tell you what he thinks about that person that you're dating. He's going to tell you what he thinks about that business, tra- that, that you're thinking about going into business with that individual. He'll tell you if you will ask, if you will search. The answers are there. There's no problem in life we face that the word of God has not already addressed. It's all there. And he will reveal his mind. And so I want to think like Christ, so I have got to yield to what he's teaching me in his word. Number 12. To what extent must our deeds be done in reference to God's glory? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Wherefore, uh, Whether therefore ye, what? Eat or what? Drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So God wants to be Lord of all. Every aspect of our life, right down to how we eat. By the way, we're going we're gonna to find the sanctuary actually brings this to our attention. How we eat, what we eat. Did you know if you eat food that's uh, irritating to your stomach, it's going to make you irritable? Are you going to reflect Christ when you're irritable? So, so what we eat, what we drink, whatever we do, let's do it to the glory of God. We need to ask, Lord, do you approve of this? Let's take a look at number 13. How much must we give up to become a true disciple of Jesus? Luke 14.33 says, So likewise, whatsoever, uh, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. I just want to share right now that as a young person, this really bummed me out. I, I view God as the big killjoy in the sky, and he was just waiting and watching for something you enjoyed so he can take it away from you. That was my picture of God. Is that not warped? Listen, my friend. Thank you, Susan. Listen, the only thing that God will take away from you is the thing that's going to destroy you. That's it. How mean is that? The only thing he asks us to give up is the thing that's going to take away our happiness. The thing that's going to hurt us in love. He takes that, or he asks, because he doesn't take. He asks for it. My, my child, I, I can see where this is, this is going to take you. You're going to have to trust me on this. I know it's going to hurt right now, but it's going to save you a whole lot of hurt later. Give it to me. Let me have it. You know, it's funny, whenever I, I feel like murmuring and complaining, 
Because that's what we do. I mean, that guy that, that saw the girl, the new lady, when he saw that she was uh, leprous, he didn't desire her anymore, right? God, God knows if, if we knew what he knew, we would give the thing up. That's the point. And, um, but did you ever stop to think about what Jesus gave up? When we are murmuring and belly aching that we have to give up the greasy whatever? Or you know what I'm saying? What did Jesus give up? His glory. He put it aside and he took on our, our human nature as messed up as it was, subject to all the stuff that humanity is subject to. He stepped out of that. He entered into the human race and he will be that forever. What else did he give up? For the first time in eternity, his communication with his father was broken. He gave up the safety of, of heaven so that he can come here, here and we can murder him. He was adored up there. He was hated down here. And we're going to complain? God only asks us to give up what's bad for us. But Jesus gave up what was good for him to, for, to save us. Absolutely astounding. Number 14. If we thus follow Jesus, how will Satan respond? John 15, 20, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they would have kept yours also. You know, when you make the decision to follow Christ fully, you're going to draw fire. The sad reality is, it's going to come from the people closest to you. It's going to come from your family. It's going to come from people in the church, the ones who aren't spending time with Christ daily, the decoys, they're going to persecute you. That what happens is, friends, is we're either under the control, allowing ourselves to be under the control of God, or we're being controlled by the devil. There's only two sides. And if I'm not meeting with Jesus daily so that, he, so that, he, so that I allow him control in my life, then the devil is taking control of my life. And we can be showing up at church and giving other people a hard time as the devil prompts us to do it. You know, the difference between the control of the, of the two are different. God's control in our lives is something we give him. The devil's control in our lives is something he takes. There's a difference. There is a difference. But peer pressure isn't just for teens. It's all of us. Number 15. Will the devil allow God to do this wonderful work in our lives unopposed? Revelation 13, 6 says, Then he, the devil, opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his what? His tabernacle and those who dwell where? In heaven. The devil hates the message of the heavenly sanctuary. Take a look at the next one. Daniel says the same thing. Daniel 8, 11 and 12 says, he, talking about the devil again, these are two prophecies, and later on we'll go into more depth. But he even exalted himself as the prince of hosts. As, and you notice your P is your P, well, in your Bible, it's, it's capitalized. The King James, uh, the, 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 um, the scholars recognize that the prince here uh, represented who? Christ. So he, the devil, even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the what? The daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast 
down to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth to the ground. What we're reading about here is the Bible prophesied that the devil would attack the message of the heavenly sanctuary because he knew that there was the key that unlocks the sinner from his captivity and sin. Take a look at the note right below, right below number 15. Here the Bible informs us that the prince of darkness would attempt to work against the heavenly sanctuary. Since the devil is unable to destroy the heavenly sanctuary, he has turned his efforts to destroying its message from the conscious minds of God's people. He accomplished this through the religious power that rose up during the dark ages, which the Bible calls Antichrist. Through this power, the devil worked to disconnect God's people from their daily experience with Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary by setting up his own sanctuary here on earth, complete with priest, high priest, and atonement. In lesson 16, we will discover who this agency is that is seeking to oppose Jesus uh, and his work in the heavenly sanctuary. You know, I, was, I used to go to church on Sunday, and how many of you here did? Okay, many of you did. And you know, we never heard a message on the sanctuary in heaven. And we're seeing in the Bible, it is replete. But the devil has done everything he can to blind us from the message of the heavenly sanctuary because that's where Jesus is working for you and me. It's amazing, amazing. Let's take a look at number 16. When Christ's when Christians allow Jesus to finish this work in them, what will be the result? Watch this. This is, we're going to read a prophecy, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a what? A witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. You know why we're still here? Because this hasn't happened. It's not because God isn't do, finished building the condo in heaven for us. He's waiting for us to take him serious that he is able to set us free from sin. That, he is, that, that, that what he said, when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he meant it. He's waiting for a generation to rise up that will not only preach the gospel, but will demonstrate it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the world, if you go to the world and you tell them that you found the truth and it's changed your life, they're going to study to see, they're going to watch you carefully to see if it's true. By the way, they're going to watch you anyway, even before you open your mouth. And that's what's going to convince them if there's, of the validity of what you believe. Because it's different from them. And so the world has a right to a demonstration. It's not only a sermon preached, it's a sermon that is lived. My friends, much of the world has heard about Jesus. What they haven't seen is a demonstration of him. That's, what, that's the last thing now that is needed. Number 17. In this struggle, who is more powerful, the devil or Jesus? Come on, what's the answer? These things I have spoken to you, he said in John 16, that in me you may have in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, listen friend, there's nothing you're going to face that I haven't already faced for you. Isn't that beautiful? I'm going to give you what you need to get through it. Isn't that awesome? And I love this next one. 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in, 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 in you is what? is greater than he is in the world. Can you say amen to that? God, Jesus is saying, look, I know you're having a difficult time, but you're facing a defeated foe. 
I'm going to bring you through this. Hang on. Isn't that awesome? I remember the day that I got a phone call. I was the pastor in the district, and I got a phone call that this, these weird things were happening with this girl. She was a teenager. And as they described to me what was going on, it, it, it didn't take a rocket scientist to, to realize that the girl was demon-possessed. Evidently, I don't, I don't know the details to the story, but evidently she, her boyfriend's mother was a witch. She was involved in the occult. And somehow through this relationship, she got possessed by a demon. <clears throat> and so they were asking me to go in and do something about it. What would you have done? And the uh, first thing I did is I went to my knees and I said, Lord, I don't want to walk into that room without the assurance that you're walking in with me. I want to make sure that there's nothing between us, Lord, that there's no sin between my soul and, and my Savior. And as I prayed and I asked God to reveal to me, nothing really came to my mind. And I said, okay, Lord, to me, that's a signal to go in, that you're coming in with me. And as I went, this was the text that kept coming to my mind. He that is in you, he was telling me, you have nothing to fear. I've got your back. We're going to take care of this. And the Lord set that girl free. It's an amazing experience. The devil is no match, friends, for Jesus Christ. He is a defeated foe. He may roar and make a bunch of noise, but, but, but that's all he can do. God is with you. Yeah, he may give us a hard time. God will only allow that which he can use to refine you. If it's not for your good, he won't let it happen. That's the way it works. He will not. And my last question, number 18. Therefore, how confident can I be that Jesus will be successful in my life? This is a text that the devil does not want you to know. And, I, and, and please forgive me, I use the, the, the Wymouth's New Testament and it's a, it's a paraphrase because I love the way he paraphrased this text. Follow carefully. For of this I am what? Confident that he who has begun a good work within you will go on to what? Perfect it in preparation for the day of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? By coming to Jesus every day. By making sure there's nothing between my soul and my Savior. And if there is, ask for forgiveness and turn from it. It's by recommitting my life to Jesus. It's by asking every day to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's by spending time in his word so, that his po- so I know his mind and his will and then go to him in prayer and, and just bur- unburden my heart to him. I want to leave with you now this last question. Your response to Jesus this morning Is it your desire to meet with our loving friend and powerful Savior, Christ Jesus, daily in order to get to know him better and to be made like him? Is that your desire this morning? If it is, raise your hand today. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for reminding us today that victory is not something you give us apart from yourself. You are our victory. Lord, help us to remember that we're only as safe as we are connected to you. Help us to realize that if we don't meet with you, we set ourselves up to be used of the devil to hurt others. Father, I I just pray with each here. I know there are a number that tremble because of the struggles they have in their devotional time, but help them to remember that that's the struggle they need to engage in. The devil will try to discourage. He will whisper lies. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring to our minds the word of Scripture that combats those lies. Thank you, Father, for the assurance that you will never leave us nor forsake us. 
And even at the times that, we feel, that when we've blown it and we feel the most low, the times we feel like we don't even want to have a devotional time with you is the day that we absolutely must and that you're waiting for us. You know our need. Thank you for your goodness and tender mercies, Lord. Bless each year, Father. You saw the hands that were raised and their desire, their commitment to meet with you each day. And you know, Lord, that our promises are like ropes of sand. We need your strength to make that work. And I pray you'll bring us to the resources and the individuals that will help us to develop a, a, a growing devotional time with you. We thank you for this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.